Good morning. I know as those that are getting baptized next Sunday, it's been uh, quite a while since as a church there's been a baptism. And so there's a bit of nervousness of how does it actually happen? And uh, we've gone over that, but if you'd like, I'll be here early next Sunday morning. And so for those that are getting baptized, if you want to show up 20 minutes early, uh, you can see the tank and you can, we'll run through it, what uh, is going to happen and uh, just refresh your memories there. So if you'd like to do that, that's available for you next Sunday. If you want to follow along in your Bibles, I'd like you to open to 1 John chapter 2 starting in verse 28, and uh, we'll be going through this passage this morning. And so you can just follow along in that. Back when I was in junior high school, uh, the boy sitting behind me loved to torment me. He would kick me from behind, and I had to tolerate it because uh, no boy in my day and age was going to tattle to the teacher, and we handled things ourselves. Now I insist that what I did to handle the problem came out of a pure heart. There was no self-motivation behind it. Obviously, this boy had a problem. No boy in his right mind torments another boy unless he has a problem, right? And it was my Christian duty to help him out. After all, to let him grow up to bully other people is not loving. So I had to discipline him. And so one day while he's uh, kicking me, I took my big pen and I held it against my, uh, the back of my seat there, the chair, sharp point out. Now the theory was that he would kick the pen instead of me and he would learn from the experience. Most of the good things we learn in life, uh, we learn from painful experiences, don't we? And so I was about to help him out by providing a painful experience. Now what happened next went far beyond anything I'd anticipated or imagined. With the next kick, he decided he was going to kick me extra hard, and the point of the pen caught him right next to his shin bone, and it just drove it in an inch or two into his leg, just past the shin bone. And so there he was with my pen sticking out from his leg. Uh, he quickly tugged it out, uh, trying to put a bold face on it. I think he probably felt more like crying, but no junior high boy is going to be crying in front of other boys. You know, and it worked. He never kicked me again, and we got along fine after that. Now, I've been telling this story tongue-in-cheek because I've presented it as having pure, uh, pure heart, pure motives. Well, there was nothing pure in my thinking that day, in my actions. Now, it's true I hadn't anticipated the consequences of my actions. Uh, I was remorseful afterwards. I never dreamt that he would actually drive the pen into his leg. But I did not do that out of a pure heart. And in Matthew 5, 8, Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And in our passage here in 1 John 2, starting in verse 28, John says, Now, dear children, continue in him, so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world did not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, 
for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Now our problem is, is we don't start out with a pure heart. That's not our natural condition. What I did that day with that pan came from the natural condition of my heart. And Jesus' description of the natural condition of the heart in Matthew 15 is not very nice. He said, out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. He could just go on and on. He's just giving us some examples. He says, these are what make a man unclean. And that day as I held out that pen so that the other boy kicked it, that came from the natural condition of my heart, out of an unclean thought. This is the natural condition of our heart. Anytime you display a negative action, word, or thought, you're simply opening a window to your heart. In Matthew 12, Jesus tells us that what comes out comes from that natural condition. He compares it like a tree. If you have a tree that produces bad fruit, it's because it's a bad tree at its heart. If it's producing good fruit, it's at a good tree. And the same way our hearts just simply speak and act out of the overflow of the heart. Jesus went on in uh, Matthew 23 and he said, we're very good at hiding the condition of our hearts. He was talking to the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. And he called them hypocrites. He said, you clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. He called them blind Pharisees, and he told them to, first of all, clean the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside will also be clean. And then he pronounced a woe on them. He said, you're like whitewashed tombs, made to look really nice on the outside. But if you were to open that door and go inside of the tomb, what you find is a body that's rotting away, it's decaying, it stinks. Outwardly, you look so good. But inwardly, you stink. What he was saying to them. Now, if you were to put the Pharisees into our context, we would say these are good people. They're the salt of the earth. They're faithful at attending church. They've made a religion out of looking good on the outside. These are the ones that get in there and serve. Many years ago, there was a group of us men we were working at a guy's place. And when lunchtime came, he invited her to come in. His wife was away for the day. And we'd all brought our lunches. And he invited us to come in and sit at his table while we ate our lunches. And he said he would make us coffee. And when I entered, what I saw was unreal. There was garbage from a foot to two feet all over the entire house. They had a grain shovel, aluminum scoop shovel. And they would scoop a path from the door to the couch. And there was a path that was scooped to the table and a clear spot around the table. And the rest was all just garbage. When I looked at the counter, the kitchen counter, it was piled high with dishes, dirty dishes. 
he cleaned off the table and he went to those dirty dishes and he grabbed cups from that pile and he set them down in front of us and he poured us coffee and I looked inside of my cup and what I saw was a ring of bacon grease and I could see where the cat had been licking at it and there was even a cat hair in that bacon grease. And at that point I was very glad that the coffee was hot and very strong. Now that's revolting. But Jesus said, that's what you Pharisees are like. You're like that cup. And when I look inside that cup, it just revolts me. It's gross. But the Pharisees took it one step better than that guy and his wife were doing. They cleaned the outside of the cup. This guy didn't even do that. Now let's change the picture. Let's say I'd walked into the house and there was no garbage. There was no scoop shovel to clean a path. The dishes were all done and they were put away in the cupboard. Everything looks just so nice. And he goes to the cupboard and he pulls out cups for us. And he puts it in front of me. And as I look in that cup, I still see that ring of bacon grease. I can still see where the cat has been licking it. I can still see the cat hair in it. But the outside and everything else looks so good. At that moment, I would still be just as revolted, wouldn't I? The fact that he'd washed the outside of the cup would make no difference. Now Jesus went on to compare it to something even worse. He said they were like the tomb that was painted up on the outside to look so nice, but inside was that body that was stunk and was rotting away. Now you can imagine the reaction of the Pharisees. No one likes to be told these kind of things. None of us would like someone here this morning to come up to them and say, you know, you're such a nice person on the outside, but inside you just stink. None of us would like that, would we? And I can imagine in their thinking, they're saying, come on, Jesus, that's not us. And so before they can even say that, he nails them with this. He said, you've heard that it's been said, do not commit adultery. And they're going to be saying, well, that's me. I have never committed adultery. I've lived a pure life. But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in her, with her in his heart. He's giving one example out of many he's given, but he's saying, you look so good on the outside because you make sure your actions are pure. But inside the heart, in the mind, it's just full of lust. You stink inside. And the truth is, we all have a problem with the inside. We do. And it's out of that kind of condition that both Jesus and John are calling us to purity of heart. Jesus is talking about our heart's motivation. When he uses pure in the Beatitudes, blessed are the pure in heart, the word pure there means to be unmixed. It means not to be defiled with anything else. And so our minds are not mixed with good thoughts and bad thoughts, good things and lust. It's not mixed. 
A pure heart is a heart that seeks only the Lord. It's like pure gold is not mixed with other metals. A pure heart is a heart that is single on its purpose to be like Christ, to do his will for his glory. A pure heart is a focused heart. Now, hearing that this Jesus had silenced the Sadducees uh, one point later, the Pharisees got together and they asked him this question, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. He's saying exactly the same thing there. The greatest commandment is dealing with the purity of your heart. Second is love your neighbor as yourself. And so it's talking about what drives us, what motivates us, what receives our affections. Do you love God more than you love money? Do you have a purity there? Do you love God more than you love your fields, your crops, your cattle? Do you love God more than you love your house? Which one receives your affection or your truck or your cars? Do you love God more than you love sports? Then your, or your clothes? Do you love God more than you love things and power and relationships? Do you love God more than you love your own way? Do you love God more than you love pleasure? Do you have a purity of focus? That's what he's talking about. So a pure heart is a focused heart to love God above all other things. The goal of a pure life is to be like Jesus. It's not that we don't enjoy the things of this world. It says, God says that he's given all things for you to enjoy. But a pure life is one where your motivation for Jesus is greater than your motivation for this world. You know, we need some motivation to pursue this. We need something that helps us along. Out of the Avonglen Church this past year, they did something with the children. They were encouraging the children to memorize the books of the Bible, the, specifically the New Testament. And if they would memorize that, get them all down, they would get a bucket of ice cream or a box of ice cream treats. And when the child was ready, they would videotape the child saying all the books, and they would play it on Sunday morning. And uh, then after they had played it, they would invite the child up and they would present the ice cream to them, this bucket of ice cream. And everyone would clap. You know, I think pretty well all the children did it. But if they hadn't been offering the ice cream and just said, go do, go memorize the books, would have they done it? No. They needed some motivation to actually spur them to do it. And so when it comes to a purity of heart, God has given us some motivation. Jesus in Matthew 5, 8 says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Does that motivate you to see God? It should. But it doesn't motivate everyone, because for some people, it can even be terrifying. If you are pursuing purity in heart, that's a joyful anticipation. But if you're not pure in heart, and you're not pursuing it, then there's no anticipation to it. And so John actually infers that they'll be ashamed when they see him. 
They'll be embarrassed that they pursued other pursuits or the pursuit of purity. And that's literally the way it'll be when we see Jesus when he comes. If we haven't been pursuing a pure heart, there will be shame. That we pursued things that were of very little value compared to that. So John expands on this motivation. He says, now dear children, verse 28, uh, chapter 2. Now dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone does what is right has been born of him. So yes, Jesus is right. We will see God. Jesus, when he comes, John says, I want to be one of those who are looking up. My head is up, looking at Jesus with joy. I don't want to be one of those Christians who are cringing back and hiding behind everyone else in the crowd. Because suddenly they are on, they're, they're suddenly ashamed of the way that they've lived their lives. You know, when he comes, you can be one of those who are looking up with joy and anticipation. When I was young, uh, my older brother shot me in the head with an arrow. My mom and dad were gone to town and uh, we were home alone and my two older brothers were engaged in the fine sport of shooting the mailbox with their arrows. Now I didn't know this and I came riding by on my bicycle and I turned to look at them just in time to catch the arrow right between the eyes and the forehead. And uh, blood was pouring down my face. Uh, of course, head wounds bleed a lot and it looks worse than it is. But they went into panic mode because mom and dad were going to soon be home. They knew it was very quickly they were going to be home. And they carried me into the house. They were trying to stop the flow of the blood and get me all cleaned up. Uh, at that moment, the return of my parents did not fill them with joyful anticipation. <laughs> not at all. They kept telling me as they were cleaning me up, don't tell mom and dad what happened. Of course, it was impossible to hide a face that's been split open by an arrow and the story all came out. But you know, if you're not pursuing purity, you're going to be like my brothers who weren't anticipating the return of my parents. And John says, if you pursue purity... You can be those who joyfully anticipate it. Now, do you still struggle with that? Well, John tells us to go back to the basics then. Chapter 3, verse 1. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we're children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in himself purifies himself just as he is pure. Are you struggling with this whole purity thing? Well, if you are, turn your thoughts to a God that loved you so much that he wanted to call you his child. He's not sitting there ready to kick you and condemn you. He's ready there to get you going on this pursuit of purity. He loved you so much he wanted to call you his child. And that is what we are. 
And not only does he want to call you his child, he wants you to be like him. And the day when Jesus comes, he says that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. The moment you see him, you'll be like him. And this gives us a hope and a motivation for now. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself or herself just as Jesus is pure. You know, do you think about that? That suddenly you're going to see God face to face. You're going to see him in his glory, see him in his perfection and holiness. And what John says is, I don't fully get it. It's beyond my grasp of my mind. It's way beyond what I can imagine, what that's going to be like. But suddenly I'm going to be like him. That I know. What does this fully mean? I don't know. But I want it. And I'm looking forward to it. This is my hope. And that hope is doing something in my life. It's causing me to pursue purity. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Then John goes on and he says, don't deceive yourself about this soul. You're either moving towards purity or you're moving away from purity. 1 John 3, 4 says, everyone who sin breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness, but you know that he appeared so you might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Jesus, John is saying, didn't save you so that you could have freedom to continue to sin. That's not why Jesus saved you. Saved people are people who are changing, who are pursuing purity and becoming more like Christ. So he says in verse 7, do not let anyone lead you astray. If you're doing what is righteous, you are righteous. If you're doing what's sinful, you're of the devil. Because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. So really what John is saying, you can't be on the path of pursuing God and on the path of pursuing sin. They're taking you in opposite directions. No one who has been born of God, John says, will continue to sin. Now he's not saying that when you become a Christian that you instantly became sinless. He's not saying that. Earlier he said anyone who claims that is a liar. If you say you're sinless, you're a liar. He's talking about the tra trajectory of your life, the path you're on. If you've been born of God, you're on a path towards purity. And if you've never entered into that path of purity, then you're not born of God. You see, Jesus came to deal with our sins. And everyone who is in Jesus is dealing with their sins. They're on that life journey of God, dealing with their sins. So for John, it's a very black and white issue. You're either on the journey of purity or else you don't know God. You're one or the other. Now, it's a matter of focus. If you're going to focus on this world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, if your attention is on these things, you're going a different direction. Or else your attention's on the hope that is ours. And Jesus is coming. One day we're going to see him face to face. And on that day we're going to become as he is. Totally pure. 
And because that's our hope, right now we're on that journey towards that purity. We're pursuing him and his purity in our daily walk. You know, so often we want a foot in both worlds. And sitting on the fence is an uncomfortable place to be. I love that picture. You know, when you try to be on both sides at the same time, you're not going to enjoy either side. A divided heart becomes a broken heart. Or picture it this way. Try to have your eyes look in two different directions. Some people can cross their eyes. Try to do the opposite. Does it work? You're just going to give yourself a headache if you do that. But so many Christians are trying to do that. And it just gives them pain in their lives. James takes us even further in James chapter 4. He said, a divided heart is actually hatred towards God. If you're trying to pursue both, that's hatred towards God. You can't say you love this world and love God at the same time. If that's what you're saying, he says you're actually hating God. The adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think the scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused us to live in us envies intensely? But he gives more grace. That's why the scripture says God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. What he's saying, James is saying either God is working against your pride or he's working in grace to help you pursue purity. Spurgeon said, a jealous God will not be content with a divided heart. He must be loved first and best. A divided heart is always a distracted heart, and God will not tolerate that. Now, the good thing is we know the final score. Now, just imagine that you're on a football team, and you have a tough game coming up. You're uncertain that you can win. And suddenly, just before the game, you're in the dressing room, and the coach comes into the dressing room, and he says, guys, I've found a way to just take us to the final minutes of the game, and we can play it here on the screen. And we can see what's going to happen right at the end of the game. Do you want me to play it? Of course, everyone wants to see it, and he plays that final moments, and to everyone's joy, they see in those tense final moments, they're behind, but just barely in time. They score that touchdown and it puts them ahead. And they win the game. And everyone is ecstatic. Suddenly the fear of losing is uh, turned into the joy of anticipating a win. And in the midst of the celebration, a player says, Well, guys, I guess we can go out on the field and we can just relax. Why take any bruises or injuries? In fact, guys, we're going to win, so if some of you need... To do something else and you want to go home, go home. No problem. We're going to win this game. We saw it. And the coach is horrified and he says, no, that's not why I showed you the end of the game. It was not to encourage you to slack off. It was to motivate you to even better efforts. Because you know who wins. Because you know that you're going to win, you can give it your best effort. Because you know that it will pay off. Now get out there and play the best game that you've ever played in your life. 
And that's what John is trying to do with us. He's taking us to the final moments of the game. Jesus is coming. We're going to see him face to face, and we're going to be pure as he is pure. We win. And so don't slack off now. Play the best game that you've ever played. Pursue purity. And if we do that, we will not be of those who shrink back when he comes. Because we know the final score, we can accept our circumstances. We can stop quarreling with God with what he has allowed into our lives. We can allow God to use these things to do his work in our lives. Paul says that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character produces hope. And what does hope do? John takes us right back in that loop and says, produces purity in our lives. And so because we know the end score, we can pursue purity with confidence. Everyone who has this hope fixed on Jesus, John says, purifies himself just as he is pure. Paul said, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Let's pray. Father, I pray just like David prayed so long ago. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. That's my prayer, that in each of us, in my own life, and in the rest of us, that you would create in us a pure heart and renew a steadfast spirit within us. I pray this in Jesus' name.